Go ahead and get in your Bibles to the book of Esther. Uh, today is a special day for us at New Grace. We are uh, honored to uh, ordain Daryl Songer into the ministry of uh, deacon here. And when I was, I was talking about or, or praying over what to do uh, for this ordination service, I didn't want to just preach to Daryl uh, because the rest of y'all will get bored about me just talking to Daryl. And so I wanted to give something for everyone. So this message is for Daryl. It applies to Daryl, but it also applies to all of us. It's not just something for a deacon to do. I'm talking about something for every single one of us. And so this morning, we're going to look at the book of Esther. Now, Esther is one of the most interesting books in the Bible. It is one of only two books that is named for a woman. But not only that, it is the only book in the entire Bible that does not have the name of God in it at all. Not one time do you find the name of God in the book of Esther. Now, because of this, a lot of theologians throughout time and biblical scholars throughout time have tried to remove Esther from the, can the canon of Scripture. They've tried to say, since God's name's not in there, God, it should not be in the book of the Word of God, and so they've tried to remove it. But thankfully, for our benefit, God has preserved it in His Word uh, because there's some important lessons in the book of Esther for us to learn. And so this morning, we're going to look at a specific moment in Esther's life in Esther chapter 4. We're going to look at, uh, we're going to be going all the way through the book of Esther very quickly. Uh, so, but you can start in one, you can follow along with me as I read, but our main focus is going to be in chapter 4. Before we get to the text and before we get to the message, I want to give us some background about the book of Esther. Now, uh, Esther's story begins about 483 B.C., uh, Esther is a, a, a Jewish girl who is living in the land of Persia. She's part of a large Jewish community that is in Persia. Now, Persia is modern-day Iran. And so these Jews, uh, years, hundreds of years ago, they were captured and taken to Persia because they refused to listen to God, and they were enslaved there. Their, their Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. But King Cyrus, you know, about 100 years before, had allowed the Jews to return home to rebuild the temple, and so most of the Jews went home, but there was a large group of Jewish believers who stayed in Persia. They stayed where they were. Now, they were looked down upon by the Jews who went back to Jerusalem. They felt like they were disobeying God because they stayed in Persia instead of coming home to Jerusalem, and so this group there in Jerusalem. They're under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're rebuilding the wall. They're rebuilding the temple. And they're working to, to kind of reestablish Jerusalem as the homeland of the, of the Jews and the worship place of God. And then you've got these other Jews who were content to stay in Persia. They weren't slaves. They were part of the community now. They, they had jobs. They had positions. They were kind of looked down upon, but it wasn't terrible for them. So they chose to stay in Persia. And so they were looked down upon by these Jews who stayed in Jerusalem. They felt that they had become comfortable in their captivity. And Esther is one of these Jews that stayed. Now, we don't really know why Esther stayed. We know a few things about Esther. She was an orphan. We know her, her parents died 
when she was very young, both of them together, so it's probably some sort of tragedy. They were killed in some way. Probably wasn't an accident. Probably wasn't a sickness. Somehow they were murdered or killed or something tragic happened to them where she's, she's orphaned as a child. And so she's raised by her older cousin Mordecai. And so we, we don't know if she stayed because Mordecai stayed or her parents stayed. We don't know why she's there, but we know she's one of these Jews who decided to stay behind. And her story begins in Esther chapter 1, starting in verse number 3. We're going to throw the verses up on the screen for you. So Esther 1, starting in verse number 3, the Bible says, In the third year of his reign, he made a feast to all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes and provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty, many days, even in hundred and fourscore days. So this is talking about King Asatuarius, who that's the only time I'm going to say his name. From now on, his name is King A. So King A is throwing a party. He throws a six-month-long party. That's a long party. And he wants to show off his wealth. He wants to show off his power. He wants to show off how awesome King A is. So he throws this six-month-long party, and there were no restrictions. Look at verse number five. It says, And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So now... After the six-month party, he has a seven. He has a seven-day party. This is this is the you know the six-month party was the pre-party. This seven-day party is the actual party. And look at verse number eight. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for the king had appointed to all officers of his house that they should be should they, they should do according to every man's pleasure. Here's what that means: the wine, the alcohol was flowing, and people could do whatever they wanted. There was no restrictions. There was no two-drink limit. The king said, you can drink as much or as little as you want, whatever you want to do. You want to, you want to drink every hour on the hour for seven days straight, do it. You want to have one sip of wine at the night, do it. You want to have nothing, do it. But everyone can do whatever they want. This is a no-holds-bar party. Then look at verse number 10. On the seventh day, so this is at the, the peak of the party, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman. Again, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna butcher these people's names, but you don't speak Hebrew any better than I do. Biztha, Harbana, Bigta, and Agbata, Zetar, and Carcass. That's a great name. The seven chamberlains uh, that served in the presence of of King A to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the beauty and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. So at the peak of this time, the king is, is feeling good. He's feeling really, you know, kind of just he's, he's drunk. He's having a great time. He's feeling good. How many of y'all know VeggieTales? How many of y'all have seen the Esther story of VeggieTales? Do y'all remember why Queen Vashti was kicked out of the palace in VeggieTales? Because she didn't make the king a sandwich. <laughs> now, I understand VeggieTales is a kid's show. We got to kid it down. But sometimes I think, even as us you know, adults, 
We kind of get a veggie tales theology. Everything's kind of, you know, the, the Noah and the Ark story. We have that, that, that picture that's in every nursery and every uh, church nursery, which it's a terrible story. But we have, you know, chubby little Noah sitting on top of a boat, smiling real big with the animals and the rainbow and, and all the water. And everybody's just happy. That, that story's terrible. There were just bodies floating everywhere because of the millions of people that were killed. It was a terrible thing. But we kind of have this enlightened, cheery story, you know, picture of the, of the Bible. King Vash, Queen Vashti was not kicked out because she didn't make a sandwich. The king called to her and said, I want you to come down to where we're partying. All the princes are there. All my buddies are here. And I want you to wear the crown and nothing else so they can see how good looking you are. This is a pretty terrible request. Now, unsurprisingly, the queen's not thrilled about this. And let's be honest, to her credit, she says no. She says, I'm not doing that. You want that? You better find somebody else. Now, good for her, but she embarrasses the king. No one says no to the king, especially the queen, no matter what he asks them to do, no matter how degrading it is. So look at verse number 16. And Mechaman answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in the provinces of the king. So he says, look, king, she didn't just embarrass you. She's causing trouble for all of us. What's his, what's his reasoning here? Look at verse number 17. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all the women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes. When it shall be reported, the, the king commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say, unto this, say, this, say this day unto the, all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. Here it goes, look. You can't let this go, because if word gets out that the queen said no to you, our wives are going to start saying no to us. Well, you're you're going to make it hard on us, king, because if I go home and my, I tell my wife to do something, she says no, what am I going to do when they're going to be like, well, Queen Vashti said no, and king didn't do nothing to her. It's like, dude, you, you've got to do something about this. We can't demand our wives to do anything, no matter how humiliating. If, if that's what happens, it'll be anarchy. What will happen to the kingdom? So Vashti is kicked out of the palace. But now the king needs a new queen. Hopefully, one that will obey him. Enter Esther. Look at Esther chapter 2, starting in verse number 2. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought of the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, under the custody of Hej, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for, for purification be given them, and let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti, and the thing pleased the king, and he did so. So, there's like a nationwide contest, kind of like The Bachelor. Who watches The Bachelor? I want to see who's a sinner. Ah, I see who the people are. All right. So I, I don't watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or any of that stuff, but I kind of know the, the, the philosophy. One guy or girl has a bunch, and he gets to pick a, give a rose to the ones he likes. That's all I know, and it's drama all the time. 
But this is kind of like that, where a bunch of women are brought before the king, and in the most degrading way, he finds his favorite. Again, I'm not going to go into details because we've got the kids in here, but it's not the VeggieTales version. It's not an interview and a date and a trip home. It's the most degrading way imaginable to pick your wife. And so she was made, Esther's found to be his favorite, and she was made queen. Now, this contest is not the kind of contest a good girl would enter. But Esther really didn't have a choice in the matter. The word went out. The people had to come. And so you can argue, well, she really had no say in the matter. But then you got to look back and say, well, Vashti did. She said no. Now, well, yeah, she was kicked out of the palace, but, but she stood up for what she believed in. She stood up for what was right. So you have Esther being made, but she goes along willingly. You know, she doesn't, it's not, the best way to describe what happened to Esther was she was a victim of human trafficking. She was exploited by a man in power, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of opposition from her or her family. There's no Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment where Esther's saying, no matter what happens, I will serve God. I may die doing it, but I'm going to do what's right. There, there's no, none of those. She goes along with this contest. Even look at verse number 20 of chapter 2. And when the king's degree, decree, which, ha, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all the empire. That's verse 1. That's why I was like, that makes no sense of what I'm saying here. Chapter 2, verse 20, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. So she even hid the fact that she was a Jew. She's hiding her faith. She's not standing up for what she believes in. She's kind of, yes, we, we can say forced into this, this scenario, but she could have said no. Yes, it would have cost her, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to die. Vashti was willing to stand up for what was right no matter what happened. She wasn't even a Jew. So yes, she was forced into it, but she, she, could have, she could have said no. She could have found a way out. But this, this whole thing, it's just, it's a messy, terrible situation. There's really no one in the book that's right. Even Mordecai is making her hide the fact she's a Jew, so he's in the wrong too. And so it's just, it's, it's just a terrible situation. But Esther, she chooses, she wins the contest and she's chosen as queen because as verse 7 says, Esther the maid was fair and beautiful. So Esther is queen, her cousin Mordecai works near the palace and throughout the, the passage of time, Mordecai finds out about a plot to kill the king. And Mordecai single-handedly stops this plot. It's like, like a diehard movie. We don't know exactly what happens, but Mordecai puts on his ninja outfit and he stops this plot to save the king. The king is saved, but he never finds out about it. So Mordecai saves the king. The king never knows about it, and life just goes on as normal. Then, in chapter 3, the story gets interesting because we meet, we meet the villain of the story. A guy named Haman. Look at verse number one, chapter three. After these things, did the king did King A promote Haman, the son of this guy, 
the Agite and advanced him and set him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Now, an Agite was a descendant of King Agag. King Agag was the king of the Amalekites, the people way back in the beginning that Saul was told to destroy by God, and he didn't wipe him, he didn't kill the king. And so the Agites are descendants of King Agag. They are descendants of the Amalekites. They are enemies of God. And this guy is promoted to prime minister. He is above everyone in authority in the kingdom except the king. And let's, let's see what happens in verse number two. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did he reverence him. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? So the king sits out a decree, Hey, this guy's my new prime minister. Everyone, whenever you see him pass by, you bow to him and just kind of give him reverence, say, Your majesty. And so he's going through the gate, and everybody's like, Oh, your majesty. And Mordecai's just sitting there going, Hey, guy, how you doing? He refuses to bow. Now, again, he may, he may be refusing to bow because I worship no one but God, but he doesn't say that. He just refuses to bow. This enrages Haman. And so he, because this one guy refused to bow down to him, he decides to kill every single Jew in the kingdom. Look at verse number 8. And Haman said unto the king, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all thy provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all the people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it to the king's treasury. So Haman says, hey, king. Now, he doesn't go to the king and say, hey, this one guy disrespected me. Let's wipe out a whole race of people. But he goes to the king and says, hey, there's this group of people. They're, very, they're different from us. Let's just kill them all. Seems a bit extreme for one guy disrespecting you. But the king, he's not really paying attention. He's like, whatever, Haman, do, do whatever you want. You, you do whatever you need to do. And so in chapter 4, Mordecai hears about this, this, this plot, this plan to wipe out the Jewish people. And he, he gets a message to Esther saying, hey, they're going to kill us all. You got to do something about this. Now, Esther... She says, I, I don't know what I can do. I can't just go to the king. If I go to the king and disagree with one of his plans, what's he going to do to me? He kicked out Vashti because she wouldn't strut her stuff in front of all his friends. What's he going to do to me when I say, you're wrong, big boy? I can't do that. He may kill me. Now, Persian law made it illegal for anyone, even the queen, to come before the king unless they were invited. And the punishment was death. So he's like, he's not called me down to see him for a while. I can't just walk in. If I just walk in uninvited, I'm going to be killed anyway. So I don't know what you expect me to do. And Mordecai's response is timeless, and it's the main text we're going to look at this morning. Look at verse number 13, chapter 4, verse number 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. 
but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? See, Mordecai says, the question's not whether or not God's going to save the Jews, Esther. He's going to save the Jews. The question is whether or not you're going to be a part of it or you're going to be punished because you, you disagree. The question is if you will be saved or not. Now, up until she's in the palace, Esther had not lived a life of privilege. Her parents were killed when she was young. She's raised by her older cousin. And she, she may be in the palace now, but it's not like she got there by some magical Cinderella story. She's in the palace in a terrible, she got there in a terrible way. She's one of the king's many wives. She's, she's just property. That's all she is. She's being used. She's being abused. She has no say. She's property. Her, and her walk with God isn't that good either because she's hiding the fact that she's one of God's people, not because she's scared, but because she's ashamed. She is facing a defining moment in her life and her walk with God. And she responds with one of the greatest statements in the Bible. Look at verse number 16. Go gather all together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And here's the great statement. And, I, and so will I go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. She finally realizes that she has to do the right thing, even if she's killed because of it. She has to stand up for what's right, even if it costs her her life. And so in chapter 5, Esther enters the king's court, and she obviously has a special spot in the king's heart because she enters unannounced and uninvited, but the king, he raises his scepter, basically signaling, I accept her being here. And so she comes up to him, and he goes, hey, Queen Esther, what can I do for you? And she invites him and Haman to a banquet. She goes, I want you to come to my house tonight. We're going to have a banquet, a dinner party. We're going to have a good time. So the king agrees, Haman agrees, and they, they go to the banquet uh, together. And at the banquet, she doesn't mention anything about Haman's plan genocide. They just have a good meal. And when the banquet's over, she goes, hey, how about y'all come back tomorrow night? King, you come back. Haman, you come back, and we'll have a good time. And so Haman, he leaves thinking pretty highly of himself. The queen, the, the king's favorite queen, invited me to dinner not one but two nights in a row. I must be pretty special. I must be some hot stuff if the queen is inviting me to have dinner with her and the king two nights in a row. And so he, he passes through the gate, and as he passes through the gate, everyone's bowing to him, except Mordecai. Mordecai's just standing over there saying, hey, Haman, how you doing? Doesn't respect him, doesn't bow, doesn't honor him, nothing. This infuriates Haman. And he decides, I can't wait to kill Haman, to kill Mordecai when we kill all the Jews. He's dying tomorrow. I have to kill him now. So he goes home and he, he commissions people. Look at verse number uh, chapter 5, starting in verse number 12. <clears throat> and Haman said, Moreover, yea, Esther, the queen did let no man come in with the king under the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow I invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Zeresh his wife, 
and all his friends unto him, let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou, Mary, unto the king to the banquet, and this thing pleased Haman, and he calls the gallows to be made. So he orders gallows, 75 feet tall. He's like, we're going to have these gallows built. I'm going to march into the king's office tomorrow morning, and I'm going to say, king, we got to kill that guy Mordecai. And the king, because I'm such a valued person, and because he loves me so much, he'll do what I say, no matter what the consequences. That's what we're going to do. So he gets, he's excited. He goes to bed. He's, man, it's tomorrow, today, tomorrow's the day. At that same time, the king can't sleep. And he's having trouble going to sleep, so he calls one of his guards and says, I can't sleep, can you read me a bedtime story? And so the guard goes to the library, and he just randomly picks out a book, and he happens to pick out the book of record. And he's, he's reading this book of record, and this book of record tells the story of how Mordecai, as a Jewish ninja, saved the king. And the king's like, this, this story's incredible! What did we do to honor this guy, Mordecai, and the guard? Like, we didn't do anything. So the king says, well, that's unacceptable. We have to honor this guy. So the next morning comes. Haman is ready to walk into the king's office and say, we got to kill Mordecai. The king is there thinking, we got to honor Mordecai. And so Haman walks in, and the king says, Haman, hey, let me ask you a question. What should we do to a guy I want to honor. Now, Haman thinks it's him. He's like, hey, 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 I'm getting some honor. See, because here's what we got to do, king. You'll put a wreath around the guy's neck. You ought to put him up on a chariot and have people carrying around the, the pallet, the, the city, shouting his praises and have one high-ranking official standing there beside him saying, hey, this is the man who the king loves. King says, man, that's a great plan. We're going to do that. Haman's like, yeah. And then the king says, there's this guy, Mordecai, I want to honor. And you're going to be the high-ranking official yelling his praises. Now, the king has no idea that Haman wants to kill Mordecai. He's just doing what he thinks is best to honor this guy. So the king has this thing set up. Mordecai gets his wreath, and he's honored. And Haman has to go around going, this is the guy the king loves, and he's so awesome. So by the time Esther's banquet comes around, Haman is just, he's furious. He's got to figure out a way to kill this guy. So he kicks, he decides before he goes, I'm going to kick my genocide plan into high gear. So they get to the banquet, and during the second banquet, Esther, while they're having meal, they're eating, the king's sitting there eating, Haman's sitting there eating, she goes, hey, uh, king, can I, can I tell you about something? There's a, somebody in this kingdom who wants to kill me. And the king's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you tell me this story? And she goes, oh, there's this, there's this guy who wants to kill all the Jews, and I happen to be a Jew. And the king's in fury. He goes, who would want to hurt my, king, my queen? She points at Haman, who's got a mouthful of food, says, that guy. The king is furious. He gets up, he storms out of the room, and when he storms out of the room, Haman gets up and he runs to Esther and grabs her dress and starts pleading with her for his life and he trips and falls on top of her and the king walks in and thinks he's trying to rape his wife. And the king immediately says, hey, you're getting hung on those gallows you built the other day. And so Haman is taken out and he's hung on the very gallows that he built 
for Mordecai. This is, I mean, you, Hollywood couldn't write a better story than this. It's a, Veggie Tales did not do it justice. It's an incredible story that it is Esther, a girl who got a very bad start in life, a girl who was abused and used all of her life, who was considered nothing, who God used to save his people. A few generations from now, one of the descendants of one of the people she saved is going to be visited by an angel and told, you're going to bring forth the Messiah. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. And so Mary, we all know it's Mary, she gives birth to Jesus. He lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for our sins, is buried, and three days later rises again to redeem us to God the Father because generations before, a young girl with a past said, I'm finally going to do what's right. I'm finally going to stand up and serve God. Esther's story serves two purposes in the Bible. First of all, it shows us the remarkable way that God brought Jesus to the world. But it also shows the way that God wants to use us to complete his will for building his kingdom. You know, some of you are like Esther. You are at a defining moment in your faith. And Esther's story shows us four things. We're going to look at this morning. The first thing it shows us is God uses anyone who is available. There are two types of people that God uses in this story, the Mordecais and the Esthers. The Mordecais are the, the kinds of people we normally think of when we think about church people. They're, they're good people. They're sincere in their faith. They haven't been involved in any major scandals. You know, you go, uh, whenever we hear testimonies, we go to conferences or, you know, we'll be in meetings and people give their testimony. You've always got those people who their testimony is like the, the most wretched testimony you've ever heard of. It's like, I grew up, you know, I was, a, I was addicted to crack at, at three months old and I was shooting people and killing people and murdering everybody, but then I got saved and now I'm a preacher. And it's like, man, it's an incredible testimony. Then you got the guys who like, I was raised in church, never really did anything wrong, got saved at about 10 years old, continued faithful in church, and now I'm serving God, but I got nothing, nothing bad in my background. And people are like, oh, that's, that's okay. And I'm like, those are the, to me, those are the good testimonies. I'd rather have the I lived for God my whole life testimony than, man, I was a wreck, and if I'd have saw you three years ago, I'd have killed you dead, but now I serve Jesus, amen, testimony. But see, the Haman, the, the Mordecai, are the guys who have those kind of bland testimonies. The worst they ever did was speed or, you know, forget to pay a parking ticket or something. Or maybe they, they forgot to recycle. So they, never, they don't have any major scandals. They're vanilla testimonies, but they're used by God. Esthers are the people whose lives are filled with shame and regret. They have lives full of compromises and mistakes. Maybe you're like an Esther. Maybe you've been the victim of someone else's manipulation, the victim of abuse or assault. Maybe you look at your life and realize you haven't acted with courage and faith when you should have. Here's what Esther's story tells us. God still has a plan for you. Esther is the one God uses to preserve the Messianic line. 
God is showing us that he works, he fulfills his will through unlikely, weak people who are willing to say, God, I'll put my yes on the table. God, I'll serve you and do right. I may not have done right in the past. I may have done wrong yesterday. But today I'm here to do what's right. Today I'm here to serve God. Of all the people in Israel God could have used, he chose an orphaned immigrant with a terrible past. It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what your ability is. It matters what your availability is. It matters, are you willing to say, God, you have put me here for such a time as this, and I'll do what's right no matter what it costs me personally. God has placed you at a specific place in your life with specific opportunities for his kingdom. You know, every one of us, no matter, no matter what we face, a situation we've had faced, you right now are in a place that God wants to use you to help influence others. You've been placed where you are for such a time as this. You may look at your life with regret and shame, but what you've been through is what God has used to get you where you are today so he can use you for something greater for his honor and for his glory. His, her decision to overcome her past changed history. And that's where some of you are today. Walking with God is about new beginnings. And God is eager and ready to start something new with every single one of us. Quit looking back. Yes, you've been mistreated. Yes, you may have made mistakes. But God is wanting to use you if you're available. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul had a past. Paul had a terrible past. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Paul's past is worse than everyone else's past in here because Paul spent his young life killing followers of Jesus. Anybody done that? Thank you for not having any hands up. He spent his life murdering Christians. And then he gets saved. I believe firmly that Paul's past was his thorn in the flesh. So you can't prove that biblically. You can't prove what it is either. I've heard it's health issues, his sight, whatever. I believe Paul's thorn in the flesh was his past. The messenger of Satan to buffet him. That every time he would try to get up and preach the gospel, Satan would say, who are you to proclaim Christ? You used to kill these people a couple of years ago. And so Paul had to get to the point where he goes, my past is done. You can't change the past. My past is in the past. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm not going to let it define me or affect me or control me. I'm going to look forward to what I can do for God now. You know, as they're saying, I don't know who said it, but scars don't define where you're going. 
They only show where you've been. You know, I've got scars all over myself, some self-inflicted, some from my sister, some from my wife. No, none from my wife. But my scars don't show what a, who I am. They show what I was. And this scar shows that I was stupid enough to cut towards myself one day, and I learned from that. And so now I'm not, I'm not a guy who cuts towards himself with a razor knife anymore because I know. Scar doesn't tell me who I am. It tells me what I was. Your past doesn't define you. It shows where you came from, but it doesn't determine where you're going. We have to forget about our past and allow God to use us now. If you've made mistakes, if you've been mistreated, ask forgiveness from God and forgive others for what they've done and be available to God today. And let me say this about forgiving others. It is hard. I know. I've had to do it. People have mistreated me. People have hurt me, and I've had to forgive. And forgiving them isn't about them. I'm not saying someone hurts you, you call them up and say, hey, I forgive you for hurting. What forgiveness of people who have hurt you is for, it's for you. All it is, is you making the decision, that hurt is no longer going to affect me. That hurt is no longer going to control me. I'm not going to allow that person who caused me so much pain to control me today. I'm, I'm releasing that pain from controlling me anymore. That's what forgiveness of other people is. It's not going to them and saying, I forgive you because, look, they may not care and it may cause more hurt. It is you saying, they hurt me, but I'm not going to let them keep hurting me. And I'm going to go on for God. You may have been hurt, you may have been abused, you may have made mistakes. Seek forgiveness and say, my past is the past. It's made me who I am right now, but it doesn't define who I'm going to be today, tomorrow. I'm going to serve God. Second thing it teaches us is God is always working in your life if you recognize it or not. Again, the name of God is not mentioned in this book, not even once, but his fingerprints are all over it. We see God working. Look at all the so-called coincidences that led to Esther being in the position she was. The queen just so happens to upset her husband, something she obviously hadn't done before. You know, as I'm studying this, I'm like, well, the king asked her to come down and nothing but her crown and her birthday suit, and she says no. She must have done it before. She must have agreed to everything he said, and this was the last all. But she's obviously never upset him before because she's still queen. So she just so happens to upset the king. There just so happens to be a contest or a placer, and Esther just so happens to win. Esther and Mordecai just so happen to be cousins, and Mordecai just so happens to work down the street from the palace, and just so happens to, to hear the plot to kill the king, and just so happens to stop the plot to kill the king, and the king just so happens to not hear about it yet. He isn't honored for it. But it's written down in a book for someone to read later. The king just so happens to not be able to sleep one night, and the guard just so happens to pick this book of the record. 
and read it to the king. And it just so happens to be the night Haman plans to kill Mordecai the next day. And instead of being killed, Mordecai is honored. And it just so happens that after he decides to, to honor Mordecai, the first one to walk in is Haman. And it just so happens that the banquet where Esther reveals her, Haman's plot, that the king gets mad, runs out, and he walks in. It just so happens to think that Haman is trying to rape Esther and have him murdered. And just all these coincidences are not coincidences. There are no coincidences in the life of the believer. Everything you've been through, everything you face, are God ordained to get you where you are today. He is sovereignly working through the stories of his people to build his kingdom, and that includes your story. You have a divinely appointed role in the kingdom, and you have been sovereignly shaped to fulfill it. You're never going to feel joy or fulfillment until you do. Think of the palace as your place of opportunity. You are where you are. You have what you have. You have faced what you have faced for such a time as this. Don't waste it. Third thing that shows us is God wants you to risk what you can't hold on to for his kingdom. Esther argues when Mordecai asks her to go before the king because she knows she's going to be killed. But again, look at in chapter number four, look at her response. <clears throat> he says, then Mordecai commanded and to answer Esther, think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For thou, if thou altogether hold this peace at this time, then there shall be enlargement and deliverance to rise from the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. So what, uh, what Mordecai is saying here is, look, Esther, your security, your safety is a myth. Don't think just because you're in the palace that you're going to escape this, this punishment or escape this thing. Or if you do, you have a chance to do something and you refuse to obey God. God's going to save his people. He promised he would. But you're, you're going to suffer because you refuse to do what God wanted you to do. The word destroyed in those verses is the Hebrew word avad. It means to be exterminated. And that word is used in the book of Esther more times than the first five books of the Bible combined. It's a, it's a terrible word. And so Ep Esther reminds us that death and danger are all around us. Nothing is certain. What is certain is God will accomplish his will. What Mordecai is telling her is, you may die either way, but at least die doing what's right. At least die standing up for God. Your safety is an illusion. Any one of us, you can get a call from a doctor that changes your life tomorrow. You can walk into work and find out you don't have a job tomorrow. Safety is an illusion, so live your life for what you know will last. Look what Jim Elliott, missionary, said. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot gain to keep what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott lived that principle. He was a missionary to the jungles of a, somewhere in South America, I think, 
Brazil, I don't know, somewhere in South America where there were cannibals and, and native people with bows and arrows and no one ever been to them. And they, they thought we're going to go witness these people. And they were concerned that when they arrived to witness to the natives, they would be killed. So they took guns with them. But they promised not to use them. Because they said, if we kill them, they're going to go to hell. If they kill us, we go to heaven. So they land their plane, they get out, and as they're getting their stuff together, they're attacked, and he is killed as he's going down to witness to these native people. He gave what he couldn't keep, his life. He couldn't keep his life, and so he goes, I'm going I'm to give what I cannot keep to gain something eternal. Because of his sacrifice, his wife later goes down, witnesses to the very people that killed her husband and sees and accept Christ as her Savior because he was willing to sacrifice what wouldn't last. He, he gave up what he couldn't gain to keep what he couldn't lose. You cannot keep your life. You can't hold on to it. What you cannot lose is whatever you invest in God's kingdom. The one thing that we know for sure is that God wins. And one day, we're all going to stand before him and give an account. We're going to give an account for what we did for his kingdom. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again. What are we doing for him? Fourth thing that Esther teaches us is God wants us to see that the need is urgent. Esther literally stood at a crossroads of life and death moment in the history of Israel. People's lives were at stake. We, we think we live in some safe times, but we, in Roanoke, we also stand at the crossroads of life and death for people in our, in our area. 5,550 children in the Roanoke area go to bed hungry each and every night. 15% will die this week of starvation. In Roanoke. We're not talking about some far-off nation Talking about Roanoke. There are more slaves in the world today than any other, any other time in history. But the worst statistic of all is there are over 3.5 billion people in the world today who have never heard the gospel. They will die and go to a Christless eternity in hell unless someone tells them. And how can we sit here comfortably this morning? The need is urgent. And God has placed you where you are for such a time as this. To build his kingdom. The story of Esther, it's a great story. It's one that Hollywood couldn't write any better. But it's more than a great story. It's a picture of our lives. We are in the moment we are today, divinely orchestrated by God for this time. We've been placed where we are. We've been through what we have for such a time as this. No matter what your past is, God wants to use you. He's worked in your life to be able to use you where you are. Time is short. The mission is urgent. Don't waste your palace.